Today's reading is from Acts chapter 18, verses 23 to chapter 19, verses 20. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only of the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he rigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Thank you very much, Chloe. So then, um, the man there on the screen is uh, someone who's had an impact on all of our lives, although uh, most of us have probably never heard of him. Uh, this is Dr. James Lind, who lived in the um, 1700s, so 300 years ago, when people went on very long ocean voyages, uh, they always got unwell with a disease called scurvy. 
their teeth would begin to fall out, their symptoms would uh, gradually get worse and worse and were very unpleasant indeed uh, until they eventually died. And then Dr. James Lind came along. He um, con conducted some experiments by giving fresh fruit and vegetables to some boats which had um, sailors on them, but not to other ones. And of course, he discovered that on those boats where they were regularly eating uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, they had much, much um, lower rates of the dis disease scurvy. Now, of course, these days, we all know that um, scurvy is basically caused by a lack of um, vitamin C. Uh, which is why those who ate things like oranges and limes, uh, they didn't get unwell. And eventually, of course, uh, all the uh, ocean-going ships around the world all started carrying um, vegetables and oranges and limes, and now, of course, um, scurvy is completely a thing of the past. However, really, the point for us is that it is a very serious thing to be deficient in something that you really need. It is a very serious thing to be deficient in something that you really need. And of course, many of us will even know this in our own lives. This winter, I'm guessing, many of you will be taking uh, vitamins, for, for instance, in order to try and stay uh, fit and healthy. And when we come to this particular part of Acts, which was read for us a few moments ago, we find three accounts of people who were all deficient in something that they really needed. Uh, as we uh, read those verses together, you probably noticed there a story about somebody called Apollos, a story about 12 unnamed disciples of John the Baptist, and a story about the seven sons of Sceva. Uh, and what actually um, links each of these stories, what holds uh, each of these stories together, is that they are all about incomplete knowledge about Jesus Christ. Uh, each of these individuals or groups they each have a deficiency uh, in their knowledge about Christ, which needs to be rectified. That's what links them. And so this passage really provides a little bit of a spiritual health check uh, for all of us this morning. Uh, and are any of these deficiencies mentioned here maybe ones that we need to learn from this morning? Uh, how are we to, to stay spiritually healthy? Uh, are we growing in our relationship with Christ at the moment? Well, uh, those are a few of the questions to be bearing in mind uh, as we go through things this morning. And so let's look at the uh, first section, uh, which I've called keen, but not taught. And this brings us really to look at the person of Apollos, there from verse 24 to 28. And immediately, if we look at these uh, verses, we see that Apollos is someone who is keen and enthusiastic about God. So we're told in verse 24 there that he uh, has a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, we're also told that he came from a place called Alexandria, uh, which had a great uh, reputation for learning. That was one of the main uh, Hebrew uh, universities uh, in the ancient world, that Alexandria uh, we're also told that he's very eloquent and well-spoken as well. It says there in verse 25 that uh, he has been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he knows Jesus, uh, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately. And so we can easily see here that uh, Apollos was well-learned and that he was also a keen Christian. But however, there was also something, though, about Apollos that was obviously lacking uh, so at the top, we're told at the end of uh, verse 25 there that he knew only the baptism of John. 
Now, we're not quite sure what this means. What does it mean that he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist? Well, maybe Apollos had been baptized by John. Um, It seems that uh, he obviously knew about Jesus' life and ministry. He had been uh, instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught about Jesus accurately. So he knew about Jesus' life and ministry. But there was obviously something that was really key that was still lacking in Apollos. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who you'll remember we met last week, they obviously discern this, and so they invite Apollos back to their home so that they can explain the way of God to him more adequately. Which I think really gives us our very first point of application this morning, which is that if you're going to correct the theology of the preacher, then it is really good to do it over a nice meal. However, what is obviously remarkable about Apollos is that he is humble enough to receive the correction from Priscilla and Aquila. There might have been all kinds of reasons, I guess, why Apollos might have been reluctant to have been corrected by them. But yet, Apollos is obviously humble enough to know that in spite of his great learning, uh, academically, he needs to learn, and he's willing to receive correction um, from them. And then we also see that this bore important um, fruit as well. So the fruit of humble correction is evident in even greater fruitfulness. So we see that uh, Apollos heads off to Corinth in verse 27, where he's a great help to the believers. And then in verse 28, we read that he's a powerful evangelist amongst the Jews. So there in verse 28, it says that he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, uh, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, indeed, Paul even underlines Apollos' great contribution to the church in Corinth over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where he writes uh, these words about the Corinthian church. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So we really do have this wonderful example in these uh, verses of Apollos, someone who is gifted and well-educated, who is keen, but yet was also humble and willing to learn more. And so ended up being even more um, fruitful and even more effective in the work of the gospel. And so I wonder this morning, uh, how far are we like Apollos? Maybe you are here and you are someone who has been well educated. Maybe you've even become a Christian and are now super keen to learn the truths about Jesus. If so, are you willing to be humble like Apollos and take on even more. I think very often if we're those who are well-educated or are more knowledgeable, it can be hard for us to be humble enough to change our minds. But yet here, Apollos obviously loved God's truth, and so he was humble, and he was receptive like a sponge and uh, willing to learn more. It's really the difference between a stone and a sponge. Okay, here we have a stone and a sponge. If you put a stone in the water, then it will just get wet on the outside. The water will never ever penetrate within. But if you put a sponge in water, of course, the sponge will actually soak up the water and the water will go deep within. And so we're to be like Apollos, we're to be like sponges. We are to really want to uh, soak up um, the truth of God's word so that we can become even more effective and even more fruitful as a result. Um, So we see keen but not taught. Now, of course, the problem for some of us here may well be that we are taught but not keen 
and we'll uh, return to this in a moment. However, for others of us, the problem may be that we are keen but not taught, in which case the challenge for us is to be more like Apollos. Now, of course, um, teaching is never just about head knowledge or learning more, but of course also the application of it. And it's also the application of it that I think we also see so clearly in Apollos here. He didn't just absorb new teaching like a sponge from Priscilla and Aquila, but the teaching that he received led him to actually serve. Uh, so remember, we see there in verse 27 that Apollos goes to Corinth, and when he, he gets there, we read that he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. So he was, really, he was a real encouragement, and he really helped the young church at Corinth to grow. And so I really think the example of Apollos is a really great one for us to bear in mind and learn from this morning. He's an example of someone who was keen to grow in his practical knowledge of Christ, and he then also used that knowledge to actually get involved in the work of the church and actually serve other people as well. He ends up at the end of this account, really, as being both keen and taught. So both keen and taught. And he really helps us, I think, to guard these two important boundaries well, he uh, helps us if we are those who are keen and not taught. Uh, we can certainly learn from Apollos and the way that he accepted teaching from Priscilla and Aquila. But then I hope you've seen that the example of Apollos also helps us if we are those who are maybe taught but not keen. And the taught but not keen category maybe applies to many more of us here perhaps. So um, first of all, we see the example of Apollos. Um, being keen but not taught. Then we also come on to a, another category of person as well, which I've called religious but not real. So remember that the level of deficiency of these groups uh, increases uh, as we go on. And uh, we now come to this group of 12 unnamed disciples of John the Baptist uh, in chapter 19 and uh, verse 1 to 7. So we see from chapter 19, verse 1, that Paul now arrives in Ephesus, and he meets this group of disciples, um, and he obviously immediately thinks that there is um, something a little bit out of the ordinary and um, something wrong which is going on here. So why don't we um, sit with Pastor Paul for a few moments uh, in his church office and uh, listen in to their conversation. So Paul knows that if these guys were Christians, then they would have received the Holy Spirit. And so the very first question he asks is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Holy Spirit? No, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit, um, comes the reply. Uh, okay, so what baptism did you receive? Uh, asks Pastor Paul. They reply, well, we received the baptism of John. Aha, now it all begins to make sense for Paul. Uh, these guys are not actually Christians at all. Uh, the real problem is actually not that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. The real problem is that they've never actually believed in Jesus Christ. How could this possibly happen, we may ask? Well, it's possible, of course, that they were followers of John the Baptist, and they just left John the Baptist uh, long before Jesus came, on, uh, came along. That is definitely possible. And so they never actually heard about Jesus at all. Or it is possible that they had heard a little bit about Jesus, and they knew that Jesus was coming, but uh, yet they were still waiting for him. But either way, the problem that Paul discerns here is that they'd never actually believed in Jesus at all. 
and so Paul fills in the blanks for them. He proceeds to tell them, well, part of John the Baptist's message was that they needed to believe in Jesus. And we can see that there in verse 4. Then he baptizes them in Jesus' name. Uh, We can see that in verse 5. And then, of course, they give uh, outward evidence of the change which has taken place in their lives now that they've received this spirit uh, there in verse 6. And so really the key thing for us is that this group of people is historically unique. In many ways, these disciples of John the Baptist are in a little bit of a historical time warp. Uh, One commentator says that they are almost Christians. Uh, They've repented of their sins, but yet they've never believed in Jesus. And so they're in this sort of weird theological no-man's land, which is why Paul needs to clearly preach Christ to them. And they need to receive the Spirit to come to know Christ uh, in a personal way. So, of course, for us, there are no more disciples of John the Baptist these days. That's a category that no longer exists. There are no groups like this sort of randomly wandering around the wilderness as somewhere in the uh, Middle East. But in the early days of Christianity, of course, in the book of Acts, there must have been lots of groups like this out there. They were sort of kind of half in only, and so they needed the message to be explained to them more completely. I suppose for us these days, though, the equivalent would be probably someone who is religious, but their faith is not real because they've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit has not yet brought them spiritual life. That would be the equivalent, I think, for us. And so in our context here in Hong Kong, we could maybe think about somebody that believes in the existence of God. Uh, Someone maybe who uh, tries to have a very moral lifestyle to keep all the rules. Uh, Someone who attends church maybe um, every Christmas and Easter. Uh, Someone who can maybe recite the Lord's Prayer because they remember it from religious education classes uh, when they were at school. And Paul's question to somebody like that who's maybe professing to be Christianly religious is very interesting and very penetrating. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? You see, the mark of being a Christian is that you have the Holy Spirit in your life. And so Paul would ask, well, um, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Are you conscious of the work and power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, we may ask, well, how would we know if the Holy Spirit was at work within us or not? And I think one of the most helpful ways to think about this is that the Holy Spirit brings new life. Uh, For all of those uh, of us, maybe, who've uh, spent some time living in the Northern Hemisphere, and I assume this is also true uh, for the uh, Southern Hemisphere as well, but I've never lived there, um, so I don't really know. But um, one of the ways that we know that spring is coming uh, is always by the new life that it produces. Uh, So you know that spring's coming, you know that there's a new life coming when you see those sort of green shoots growing out of the ground, or you hear the birds singing in springtime, or or you see the animals beginning to come out of hibernation, maybe. All of those are signs of life, really, that winter's at an end, and that the new life of spring has come. I think it's uh, exactly the same with the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know his presence by the new life that the Spirit brings. At some level, uh, if uh, if we know the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll have a new love for God. Uh, we will be concerned about sin and those things in our lives, maybe, which don't honor God. And we'll have a new desire for God's word. 
and you desire to spend time with God's people, a new sense perhaps of God's presence and God being with us. Uh, All of those are signs or indicators which are given to us in God's word, the Bible, that God's spirit is at work in us. Now, of course, we may not experience all of those things all at once or all in equal measure. And, of course, there'll always be uh, elements of winter that remain um, this side of glory. But yet we do expect that to some extent um, those things will be there. But if we've never experienced any of those things, and yet we're someone who says that we are religious, then it may be actually that we are really like these 12 unnamed disciples of John the Baptist here. And actually our greatest need, what we really need, is to come to understand the gospel more completely and especially to come to trust in Jesus in a personal and meaningful way. And we basically need to hear more about Jesus, how Jesus loves us and how Jesus died on the cross for us, even although we haven't done anything to deserve it in order to restore us to a right relationship with God. And actually, that's a very uncomfortable truth for many people who are religious to actually hear, because we all want God to be somehow impressed with our religious deeds. Yet the fact of the matter is that we can only ever come to know Jesus through, um, through Jesus. We can only ever come to know God through Jesus' death for us, uh, which seems to be uh, the problem here. So what does this group need? Well, they need the gospel applied by the power of the Holy Spirit to turn their religion into reality, um, which um, was the issue for these disciples of John the Baptist here. However, we also need to move on to our last group of people who have called uh, superstitious but not saved. And uh, this brings us on to the last of the three stories and uh, arguably uh, the most exciting of the lot. And we can um, see the account of them there from verse uh, 11 to 19. And here in these um, verses, I think we see two contrasting attitudes to the name of Jesus. And first of all, we have the seven sons of Sceva who misuse Jesus' name. Um, So we'll see in a few moments that they misuse Jesus' name and that this is contrasted uh, with the uh, inhabitants of Ephesus uh, who hold the name of Jesus, uh, we read, in high honor. So it's the name of Jesus that uh, really uh, holds this uh, final section together. Um, In terms of a little bit of background here, I think it's helpful for us to know what ancient Ephesus was like. So ancient Ephesus was basically somewhere that was completely awash with magic and superstition. Uh, It was dominated by the giant temple of Artemis, or the uh, giant temple of Diana, as it would have been called by the uh, Romans, which was the sort of uh, mainstay uh, of the uh, local town and even the uh, region's economy. And then in the ancient world, um, just to prove how much uh, Ephesus was into magic, and uh, superstition. In the ancient world, they even had these things called Ephesian letters, which were basically tablets, which which had sort of spells and incantations and uh, other things that were written on them. And so what we really have when we're thinking about ancient Ephesus is a place that was filled with the occult and um, superstition and all kinds of magic. Uh, It was a little bit like having Halloween all year round. Every single day like Halloween, except people really believed it and really thought that it was actually true. Uh, That's what things were like in ancient Ephesus. 
And so in this context, it's not surprising that when Paul performs sort of healings and uh, exorcisms and, and other very supernatural things, like we see here in verse 11 and 12, that there's a lot of interest uh, by the Ephesians in what is actually going on. Uh, it's possible that the uh, seven sons of Sceva then were in this for the money. It's also possible, though, that they were just uh, trying to do good. Uh, but either way, it's clear that they don't actually know Jesus, and they're just trying to use the name of Jesus like a spell or a mantra. Uh, you can see this, for instance, in verse um, 13, uh, when they would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... So it's pretty obvious that they had no personal relationship or real interest in Jesus for themselves. They were just saying, in the name of Jesus, uh, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And I think that makes it clear for us that their belief, if we can even call it that, is really just pure superstition. Uh, They're just using Jesus' name like a magical um, formula, maybe, like some kind of spell uh, to try and get the result that they want. They're trying to harness Jesus' supernatural power, if you like, for their own ends, but without actually knowing him. And so it's not long, therefore, before things go badly for them. Uh, One day they're trying to cast out a demon, and suddenly the demon answers them back. Um, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the evil spirit beats them, and um, they all flee, uh, bleeding and naked. As uh, one commentator, a guy called Richard Longenecker, has written, the name of Jesus, like an unfamiliar weapon misused, exploded in their hands, and they were taught a lesson about the danger of misusing the name of Jesus in their dabbling in the supernatural. Uh, Even in our world, uh, we know all about powerful names, don't we? Uh, If you decide to start your own company one day and uh, decide to call it Microsoft, uh, then you'll soon realize what a powerful name that is when the real Microsoft takes you to court. Uh, You see, you can't just mess uh, with any old name how you you like. Um, It is possible to misuse names. And I do think that's maybe part of the lesson uh, for us here. You see, Jesus' name sums up all that Jesus is. So maybe there's a warning here for us about um, maybe trying to misuse or manipulate Jesus uh, just to get what we want. And so we can maybe think about all of those people in the culture around us, perhaps whose attitude uh, to Jesus is that he's just some kind of lucky charm uh, that can help us get what we want out of life. And so maybe they wear a crucifix, maybe we, maybe we light some candles occasionally, maybe we occasionally give Jesus some money, perhaps, uh, and we expect then Jesus to work for us and really help us to get what we want out of life. Uh, but all of those things um, ignore the fact that we don't really know him. We may be using the name of Jesus in a superstitious way, we may be superstitious, but yet we are not saved. And that seems to have been the problem here. I think a much better response to Jesus and his name is uh, surely the one that we read about later on in verse uh, 17, where we read that the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Um, So let's uh, reread the last few um, verses of the the passage there and uh, remind ourselves of what they say. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced, 
sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So then, what does it mean for us to honour Jesus' name in our lives uh, and honour his name? And I think the first thing we can see that it means from these verses is reverence. I think really that's what's referred to there in verse 17 when it says that they were all seized with fear. And that's talking about a reverential fear of Jesus. Uh, Honouring Jesus means that we have a deep reverence for him based on who he is. Uh, He is the one who is risen from the dead, the one who has power and authority over all things. And so we must never use his name lightly. Uh, We must reverence him uh, for who he is. And then the other thing that we see here is repentance. So reverence and then repentance. We we honor Jesus. We honor the name of Jesus when we place him at the absolute center of our lives and bring our lives into line with his will. And again, that's exactly what we see here as well. So it says, um, sorry, verse 18, uh, that many of those who believed now openly came and confessed what they had done. Uh, Obviously, therefore, it's interesting, it says many of those who believed now openly came. So it's obviously talking here about those who had previously believed in Jesus, those who were claiming to be Christians. Uh, Obviously, then, there were many in the church who were sort of living with a foot in both camps. Uh, They said that they were Christians, they said that they were um, believing in Jesus, but yet they'd also hung on to all of their pagan superstitions as well. They'd kept all of their scrolls and their Ephesian tablets and their um, spells and incantations. And so now they repent, they confess genuinely, and they bring them all out. They make a great big bonfire of the whole lot. Uh, And we read that the cost of all the scrolls that was burned came to 50,000 drachmas. That was a huge sum of money in the uh, uh, ancient world. Uh, One drachma was about one day's wages on average. And so really, I think this just gives us a little bit of insight and a little bit of an idea maybe of what it means to honor Jesus in our lives. Not just singing songs, although that can be honoring to Jesus, but actually really reverencing Jesus, uh, reverencing him and bringing our lives into line with what he would want for us. It's maybe helpful as we come to apply this to ourselves, maybe just to think a little bit more about the whole subject of repentance, which is highlighted here for us. These people confessed their sins, and that worked its way out in the destruction of all of those things in their lives that were displeasing to God. The whole lot goes up in smoke. I think one of the problems, actually, that we often have as Christians when it comes to repentance is that we think that God is sort of like a stern schoolmaster. We think that God is a sort of harsh taskmaster. He's a harsh disciplinarian uh, who is displeased with us constantly. But what we forget is that God is actually gracious and loving. And when he calls us to repent, God calls us to repent for our own good. It's actually a really positive thing. At the end of the day, the reason why God calls us to repent from all of those wrong things is because they were actually harming us. They weren't doing us any good anyway. You see, when God calls us to repent, God is not spoiling our fun. Um, But rather, he's calling us actually to a new level of joy and a new level of uh, intimacy and life uh, with him. Uh, I've been uh, reading recently in the book of uh, Jeremiah uh, in my morning devotions 
And uh, one verse I've been re- reminded of is this wonderful little verse in uh, Jeremiah 15 and verse uh, 19, which says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, If you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. I think that just begins to uh, indicate to us what a positive thing repentance really is. You see, repentance is a gracious invitation from God to turn away from all of those things that are actually harming us anyway and to return to him as our loving Heavenly Father so we can be more useful to him in the future. And uh, very often, as we're reminded here, repentance has an outward aspect to It begins in the heart, but then it often has an outward aspect too as we begin to get rid practically of all of those things that may be displeasing to God in our lives. Getting rid of our idols, getting rid of uh, horoscopes, uh, fortune-telling, tarot cards, all of those um, um, superstitious things maybe. Maybe deleting our computer memory and then... Uh, getting accountability uh, to make sure that we don't easily go on those websites again. Um, Trashy novels uh, which are doing us no good. Uh, Music or activities maybe that are just really unhelpful to our walk with God. Um, Those things that may be keeping us um, from God, uh, whatever that may be for us. But I'm sure you see the principle here easily. Uh, The principle is that we need to leave a life of sin and wrongdoing behind and embark on a new path that honours Jesus' name and that brings our lives into line with him. And there's some wonderful examples of this, uh, even in recent church history. Um, Some of you here this morning may have heard of or may have even actually benefited from uh, some of the revivals that took place on American Christian college campuses in the mid-1990s. Uh, So this was a move of God's spirit that took place on a number of uh, college campuses, including places like uh, Wheaton College in the U.S. and a number of others. Uh, I know uh, somebody that was actually there reasonably well. And um, they tell of some of the meetings that they used to have for students at that time. Uh, They would actually put microphones at the very um, front of the hall, and there'd be long lines of students that would actually line up as uh, the Holy Spirit prompted them to um, confess their sins or anything else that they wanted to share with the rest of the students who were there. And my um, friend tells how they confessed uh, sins like um, cheating and bitterness, uh, lust, anger, racism, pornography, addictions of various different uh, kinds, sexual immorality, stealing, materialism, broken relationships, and uh, many, many more things as well. And this went on all, all night long for a number of uh, nights over the course of about a week. After each student shared, they were prayed for, normally by a group of other students, and they would pray for them, giving uh, acceptance and uh, encouragement. But really, the overwhelming sense was of the Holy Spirit con- convicting people of their sin and their wrongdoing, and those things in their lives that were really keeping them away from God, and of people getting right with God and experiencing his peace and freedom. This is what one student recounted about the second night On this evening, one student placed a bag of CDs on the platform, signifying his submission to the Holy Spirit to rid himself of the music that was detrimental to his spiritual growth. 
After he publicly confessed his sin, dozens of young men and women rose from their seats, left the auditorium and returned over the next few hours, bringing with them objects that had been a barrier in their relationship with God. On this night, uh, five garbage bags were filled with books, magazines, videos, pornography, drugs, tobacco, alcohol, CDs and even credit cards. Now, of course, the uh, impact of that kind of thing is seen in whether or not it produces lasting um, fruit. And we can't say that this is how God always works. And of course, there may be uh, some of you here and uh, you are thinking that all of this just sounds a little bit embarrassing. And don't worry, I'm not about to suggest uh, that we do anything like this here right now. But maybe it is worth asking that if we were to do something like this here, then what would it be that you would need to confess? Is there anything that God's Spirit is convicting you about that you know that you need to confess and maybe deal with in order to get right with him? Perhaps even to the extent of uh, taking practical steps or uh, speaking to someone else and confessing to them. Um, Lots of Christians have testified that it's uh, really helpful so far as repentance is concerned of it to not just be be between them and God, although obviously that's important, but also to get other Christians involved as well, uh, exactly like they did here at Ephesus. And I need to confess to you that at various points during my Christian life, uh, I've needed to get rid of things, Um, maybe books or to give up certain activities or hobbies and Let me tell you that it's been an overwhelmingly positive thing. Uh, The cost of those activities isn't anything at all when compared to its worth in in terms of joy and a deeper relationship with Christ. And so are there things that you need to get rid of for the sake of your relationship with God and the joy that comes from knowing him? Well then, uh, in conclusion, we have seen that Luke highlights here three areas where we may be deficient in our knowledge about Jesus. Are we keen but not taught? Are we religious but not real? Are we superstitious but not saved? Or maybe for us it's not so much that we are suffering from these deficiencies ourselves, but rather it's those who we love. We feel a heavy burden maybe for um, friends or for family members uh, who are maybe religious but not real, or are superstitious but not saved Uh, and if so uh, we need to be praying for them. Hopefully we've also seen that just as James Lind discovered that the way to guard against scurvy was to eat uh, fruit like oranges and limes so we've discovered that the way to stay spiritually healthy is to be growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I wonder if you noticed that this is the common remedy in each of these three cases. Apollos needed to be taught from God's word The 12 disciples of John needed to come to believe in Jesus and be baptised in his name. And the inhabitants of Ephesus needed to come to reverence Jesus and repent and to hold his name in high honour. And so let's make sure this morning, uh, especially if we're Christians, that we're those who are growing in Christ. That we've come to believe in Jesus, uh, that we're spending time in God's word. And especially that we're responding to his gracious invitation to repent, um, turning from all that we know to be wrong uh, and experiencing the um, freedom and life that he brings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word to us this morning. We give thanks 
for how you graciously responded to each of these groups and how you rectified the deficiencies in their faith. We give thanks that Jesus supplies all that we need and we pray this morning that you would help us to honour him in our lives, reverencing him and confessing our sins to him. Help us to respond as these Ephesians did here when they openly got rid of all that was hindering their relationship with you. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.